0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Hey, so whereabouts are you guys calling from exactly? Bedrooms, uh, country, state—just for the listeners.
1: You go first, Megan. <laughs> I am calling from Launceston, Tasmania. And yes, I am currently in my bedroom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Lillian?
1: Uh, I'm
2: calling from Brisbane, and I am calling from my partner's office, which is uh, hopefully quiet enough. Um, yeah. There's a bit of extended family out there making dinner, so <laughs> fingers crossed that it's, it's good sound from here.
3: That's all good. I'm, I'm in Brisbane too, and normally I get a, uh, my two dogs making a guest appearance at, at least at some point. So uh, uh-huh. we'll Me see you're how we get.
1: Familiar that. with that one? <laughs> uh, I, I have a dog at home oh, downstairs at the moment, and I've told my partner keep him downstairs at all times because <laughs> I can't get interrupted. This is like this is special right
3: now, so <laughs> I feel <laughs> very is, privileged. So uh, well, this
1: is my first podcast. Um, wow. I'm I'm super excited.
3: We should ask Lillian, is this your first podcast interview?
2: It is actually yeah oh. I'm in the same boat as Megan. We've only just had our paper out in the last week and yeah. I've never done radio or podcast or anything.
3: And this is one of the benefits of actually Zoom. Whilst we're remote, we actually it does mean we can actually reach out to people far more uh, quickly. So, to give a bit of background for the listeners, so uh, one of our previous podcast guests, uh, a Dr. Jennifer Lavers, shout out to Jennifer. She is a wonderful, wonderful person in all in all, in all ways. Uh, but she uh, said, "Look, we've actually just about to release this uh, paper uh, authored by these uh, lovely uh, ladies joining us this evening," and uh, she said, "Look, they'd be great podcast guests." And we were like, boom, email like five minutes later. And then like maybe half an hour later, you guys were like, yeah, let's do it. And then literally what, uh, what a week later, here we are.
2: Oh, it was so strange the day that we got that email from you. So I've, uh, I've just started some casual work having freshly finished my, my studies. I can now have somewhat of a normal life fairly just sort of standard work but I've I've got the luxury of listening to podcasts and music throughout the day while I work and I've been listening to you guys for the last couple of weeks and and another girl that I work with was like oh there's this podcast I'm sure you'd love it's called Ocean Protect I'm like oh Oh. funny you say that I'm already listening to it and and the wonderful Jennifer Labors has already been on it so I'm sure you'd love this episode and and then you know sure enough I take my headphones out knock off and there's your email and I was just I couldn't believe it I was like wow I was like Brad Darrymple, that name sounds uh That's <laughs> for me. And I was just like, no, no way. Wow. That <laughs> so, is
3: amazing.
2: Really So, is. yeah, it's, it's quite a privilege to to have you guys want to have us on to speak about what we've done. So, yeah, thank you so much.
3: Yeah. Now, look, t- I- I'm super excited. Obviously, with the with the wonders of technology, we can reach out to anyone, but we only target the primo guests, obviously. So we- we've reached the-, <laughs> the stars and gone <laughs> Megan Grant and Lillian Stewart. Can you pretty please come on our little show, Ocean Protect podcast? And uh, so, we're- look, as much as it's a privilege for you guys, which I, I- that must be an exaggeration, we are e- oh. extremely privileged to have both you uh, lovely uh scientist on our show tonight and in celebration we should point out actually as a side note i think it was was it celebrating women in stem last week i believe so stem being science technology engineering and mathematics you know trying to encourage more uh, female participation in the stem um i think that was last week
1: yeah i think you're right also national science week last week so yeah they celebrating all things science
3: we're very keen to delve into this uh, paper of yours, and I should—I'll I'll quote it word for word. It's—it's it's, uh, published in the recent uh, Marine Pollution Bulletin, and it's called "The Seasonal Ingestion of Anthropogenic Debris in an Urban Population of Gulls." But look, before we delve into the science, one thing we love doing on this show is getting a little bit of a backstory of uh, of our guests. So maybe maybe we'll start with you, Megan.
1: I have finished my honours degree, and I am a almost. Almost two years into my PhD.
3: What is your PhD about?
1: So I, <laughs> in a nutshell, I am studying seabird poo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to put it absolutely as simply as possible. So we know that seabirds bring vast amounts of nutrients from the marine environment to their terrestrial colonies, like their breeding colonies, through their poo. And they get these nutrients from their, their prey. And um, when they yeah, when they go back to their breeding colonies, they do a poo called guano and the nutrients within the guano leach out into the soil and have huge flow on effects for the terrestrial environment. So we've seen changes to just like the, like the characteristics of the soil, um, increased biodiversity, um, changes in species composition, a huge range of, of things, mostly beneficial. So that's, that's one side of my PhD, but I'm also looking at how the plastics that the seabirds ingest and the chemicals associated with those plastics, how they also may be leaching out through their guano and how mm. that also may be impacting the terrestrial environment as well. So my study species is the flesh-footed shearwater. I'm sure you would have heard Jennifer talk about mm-hmm. those in a previous podcast. Um, and so these birds ingest huge quantities of plastic. So we're talking you know, fifty pieces. We found one with two hundred and sixty-three pieces. Like it's it's ridiculous amounts of plastics. And we know that plastics are made up of chemicals, flame retardants and plasticizers and all sorts of nasties. And then when they're in the marine environment, they also attract other chemicals and pollutants, mm. so like trace elements and that kind of thing. So when it when these plastics are ingested, we want to know whether yeah, those chemicals and those pollutants are getting transferred into their poo and then into the terrestrial environment. Mm. I haven't got any sort of solid results on the the chemical size of things, but I've just found out – well, I've I've just done some calculations to find out sort of just how much plastics are transported to Lord Howe Island, and it's almost a million pieces every single year.
3: So that's weird. So that's a a transport mechanism. Essentially, obviously, plastic is going into our ocean – Through various mechanisms, and uh, uh, we know eighty percent of it's from uh, land-based sources. But Mm -hmm. actually, the birds are actually a transport mechanism themselves by essentially ingesting the plastic and bringing it back to land.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's something that we that there isn't a lot of research out on this topic at the moment.
0: This is exactly it. There's just every single episode that we have just blows our mind, you know, a million bits just carried from birds.
1: You know, like
0: we're learning so much and, I mean, this is why you're here, but, oh, God, keep going.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, almost a million pieces every single year and when it was first discovered that these birds were transporting these plastics, so back in 2003, so our collaborator on board, Howe Island, he took this amazing photo of a um Shearwater that had decomposed, and all that was left was its skeleton. And within its rib cage was whoa, 100 pieces of plastic, perhaps. So it was that photo that sparked all of this research. And we estimate in that the gosh 17-ish years since that photo was taken, about 13 million pieces of plastic have been transported to Lord Howe Island by the shearwaters alone. It's 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 mind-boggling,
3: really. It's almost hard to imagine, and and Jennifer Lavers talked about this uh, as well in terms of it's hard to comprehend millions of pieces of plastic, and and recognizing that Lord Howe Island is actually quite a small island in essentially the middle of nowhere. Really, it's uh, what a, a four or five hour plane ride east of Sydney. Like you think of an area like that, you'd be relatively
0: pristine, but the reality is, it's not. Okay, Megan, you know, good backstory. Great. We're going to come back to you. Lillian, sitting there thinking that we're not going to ask you. Backstory.
2: No, that's okay. No, I love hearing about Megan's backstory. It's fantastic. Yeah, she's she's poo girl, so I guess you can call me vomit girl. Um, so... Best we
0: podcast do. ever.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, girl and Vomit Girl together Really stepping
0: it up here, Brad.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, the bar been set high, that's for sure. <coughs> um, no, my backstory is a little different. So I've just finished my honours um, at the University of Tasmania, but I'll go back just a bit before there and I will get to there. So I've always been really understanding and appreciating of our natural world and knowing that we've got something really special, especially growing up in Tassie, being Tassie born and bred. I, you know, I've lived in and, and around some pretty breathtaking and unique environments. And much to my parents' dismay, actually, my mother has told me that my first word as a, as a very young child was not mum or dad, but it was in fact a variation of bird. <laughs> um, and wow. so I guess my passion for sort of our feathered friends have, has stemmed from pretty much since before I could walk. I've also lived on King Island for part of my childhood where um King Island has some incredible beaches they're they pretty much just go for days on end they they're hit by some crazy weather which brings in like shipwrecks there's an awful lot of shipwreck history there and what also gets washed up there are things like marine plastics and that sort of thing and I can remember when I was about 7 walking along and maybe finding some rope or some fishing line or something whereas Fast forward to, to now, while well, I'm in my, my early 20s and I'm going to beaches and I, I don't think I've been to a beach any time recently where I haven't picked up a handful or an armful of, of plastics and other human-related debris. And so I have known that I have wanted to do something positive in this world. There's climate change, there's plastics, there's so many issues that are going on, it's very easy to feel very lost. So I did a Bachelor of Science. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I just knew science was was the way to start off. So I, I completed that and I got to the end and I was still feeling a bit lost. I knew I wanted to make change, but I didn't know how. And then Dr. Jennifer Lavers comes along and mm. she, in an email, says, I've got this project. We're looking for someone passionate to to take it on. It was fantastic. It was really intense. Honours is not easy, as Megan knows, with a PhD as well. Mm. And so I, I did that and I've spent the last year and a bit looking at seagulls and their vomits. so more glamorous stuff there.
3: <laughs> Yummy! Yeah, and I guess that, that's the uh, that's the I guess the, I guess the key focus of this
0: paper. Well, that's that why you guys are week. two peas in a pod, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're
2: yeah, coming at it from both ends, literally. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <we are. laughs>
0: so, tell us how you've come to meet, and then, and obviously, tell us about your research project.
2: Well, Megan, please feel free to butt in if you want. But so Jen is the head of a very dedicated and passionate group of researchers. So that stems from, um, you know, re- very established researchers like herself to postdocs to postgraduate students and honours students. And we are collectively known as a drift Lab. Basically, we look at everything that's adrift in the ocean, whether that be chemicals, pollutants, plastics. And yeah, Megan and I met through this project. Megan was involved in the early days of this one. Basically, these, uh, these gulls that roost in a very pristine and, and beautiful wetland in Tassie's North in a town called Lonseston. They produce these little vomit pellets. People would know what an owl pellet is. It's very much the same thing. It's the, it's the items that the animal can't digest. It's completely natural and they will bring that up to expel it from their body. And yeah, basically these pellets are dotted along these wetlands, came across them and thought, what a great project. There's things in these that shouldn't be there and let's look into it.
3: Mm, wow. And, and so you've obviously got, there's a whole bunch of different birds in the world, but how did you sort of identify, like, what, you know, species of birds you're going to look at and how did you identify where you're going to look at them in particular? And
1: back when this project started, we had another member of our lab. He, he was doing this sort of like interactive day at the wetlands and one of the, the sort of tour guides sort of pointed out, um, these boluses or these pellets. And from that, it was, it all sort of just snowballed and grew into this into this massive project, and here we are today. So we, we know that there are Pacific boluses because there is a, a bunch of really dedicated photographers who visit these wetlands very very frequently. Because it's, it's like Lillian said, it's really picturesque. It's really beautiful down there, and. These photographers were able to give us some photos of the areas where we collect these boluses from, and from those photos we were able to identify that the pellets are belonging to the Pacific gulls and right. the Pacific gulls only. So.
3: so just to confirm, these boluses, if a, if a bird vomits, it's like a pellet of vomit. Is that what a bolus is?
2: Yes. <laughs> that's wow. exactly what it is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. They're sort of – if you put your – you know, your – forefinger and your thumb together, they sort of the sign of (laughs) uh, maybe like a 50-cent piece, some are smaller, some are bigger. There's a bit of variation, but they're sort of just, yeah, these – small little things they can be quite hard and densely compact or they can be for example if they're composed entirely of fish bones they might be sort of longer and kind of spiky and loosely held together but we found ones for example that the birds had eaten a lot of I'm going to assume like tissue or paper towel and when it's mixed in with all its other goodies that are in its stomach it gets really tightly compacted like a you know like a trash compactor mm. and it comes yeah. out in a really solid pellet. And when we go to pull those ones apart, you've really got to get in there with the tweezers and the and the probes. And it's it's crazy. It's it's absolutely unreal. So once you know that these things exist, when you see them, it's just like, I just want to pull it apart. I just want to see yeah. what's in there. You're
0: yeah. a yeah, weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Who's that going through? Because everyone would assume that it's, it's bird poo. Um, so they think you're an ultra weirdo. Um, oh,
2: yeah, we're With something else. But but just going back to
0: it, isn't it interesting that, you know, how do you know that? It's because of wetland photographers, you Mm -hmm. know, like hats off to these guys that go out and study and take photos of beautiful stuff that happens to contribute to scientific research. I mean, you know, like next time you see a bird watcher and a photographer out there, you're like, hey, you know, good on you, mate. You know, you never know where it's going to end up.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think – I think that like using those, those photographers right at the start was really just like opening the door for all of the community members and all of the volunteers that we've had on board throughout the entirety of this project. It's, it's really been a huge collaborative effort between, I mean, there's, well, there's the five co-authors on this paper, but Mm. there are, gosh, hundreds, if not thousands of school children who have helped dissect these boluses in in little workshops that we've run over the last couple of years.
0: It's so cool. It, sorry, it's really, really cool project to get, you know, great collaboration through the community, especially school kids helping
1: out. It's Yeah, it's it's been amazing. And we've had some of the school children come back for like a second year in a row to do the workshop again. And they've said to us, you know, Oh, I talked to my, my school tuck shop and we were able to limit the amount of straws that we were using or remove some item that had too much plastic packaging or something along those lines. And it it just, oh, it just warms your heart. It makes you feel, you feel so good. Like I'm making an impact on these children and these children or these school kids are, you know, changing their own minds about this topic. And it's, it's, it's really, really rewarding.
4: Down.
2: on that one megan if it's all right that i add, there was a school activity where a couple of grade nine science students came to the university and they they all got given a tray and a, and a bolus and they all pulled it apart and recorded what they found and that only not only helped us with going through these hundreds and hundreds of these things but it was really funny because a few weeks later i was at just a, a market in town And this lady sort of bumps into me and she goes, oh, are you the, are you the bird vomit lady from the university? And I was, I was just like, do I, I'm sorry, do I know you? Have we met? And she goes, oh, my son did your project. He, he did one of your activities. He really loved it. I was like, oh, that's, that's so weird. Like of all the things that you could run into someone and, and say, are you the bird vomit lady? That's, probably going to stay in my mind for quite some time so
3: <laughs> i think that could be your uh, tag for life really yeah uh, that's great <laughs> but on the topic of uh of citizen science this is something we talked about with Jody Salmon who's the general manager of Reef Check Australia and she talked about essentially engaging with the community around scientific research not just to gather data but to essentially help them understand the issue and essentially empower uh them to uh drive action really so if you imagine you're a school and to be honest as a school kid I would never I certainly never had the opportunity and to be honest I probably never wanted to dissect bird vomit but if I if I had have uh, done it I obviously would have identified that, yeah, plastics are a fairly large component of that vomit, and it would have certainly got me thinking about actually making actions uh, in my own life to sort of, I guess, minimise my own sort of uh, plastic pollution footprint. So, yeah, look, it's, it's all about in sort of not like now. I guess that's really different to I guess historical scientific research and publications. Is the yeah, the classic the, the typical example is to collect a whole bunch of data, have these really scientifically robust methods publishing it in a journal that no one will read and then go on to the next sort of thing you do whereas you guys have obviously engaged with a whole bunch of the community and also other sort of authors to still produce a, a fantastically scientifically robust uh paper but then this is the beauty of what we, f- we find with podcasting it all of a sudden it it, it takes you uh, that uh research and disseminates it to a sort of a, an audience that would otherwise essentially never read a, a scientific journal and obviously gets behind that you know it makes it more human makes it more sort of understandable Soon as you start talking, oh, I'm Bird Vomit uh, Lady and I'm Guano Girl, instantly everyone goes, okay, I want to listen to these two people as opposed to, oh, it's uh, Megan Grant, Lillian Stewart of University of Tasmania. You guys sound very academic, but Vomit vomit Lady and Guano Girl, but, You
0: know, people will tune in for that. Yeah, our ratings will <laughs> go Sounds up like the
2: latest of superhero, Julie.
0: Right <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I can imagine what your superpowers are going to be. <laughs> 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 I'd rather not. God. But um, but just we, we just to
3: clarify, exactly where was this wetland you did that you focused this study on?
2: So the wetlands that we used as our study site were the Tamar Island wetlands, and that's in the Canamaluca region in Launceston. So it's in the north of Tasmania. And this wetland, it is, as we said before, it's completely stunning. it's it boasts loads and loads of bird life and other, other wildlife and plant life that's quite unique to that area. There are a tourist hotspot as well. There's loads, I don't know the exact numbers, but every day that, that I've been there collecting boluses, there's always just like busloads of tourists and they're taking photos.
0: Do you wear high vis?
2: No, I um, I try and well, usually I try and wear a shirt that says yeah. University of Tasmania. Yeah, so when yeah. I'm walking around, you'd what,
0: have to wear something. seems
2: to be poo, people don't give me weird looks, but oftentimes I forgot, and so I'd be sitting by myself just with my headphones in, and I'd be like, "Oh, that's a good one," and then I'd realize there's a, an elderly couple behind me, kind of looking at me like I a would bit
0: judge. Like, I would judge, you
3: know. <laughs> I
2: would uh, do. Come on, it's. You're shouting, right. out
3: to, shouting out to Megan. Check out the turd over here.
0: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: one time I, I went out to collect boluses and so we, so we collect the boluses in um, reusable uh, snap lock bags that we've collected from people throughout the university and all that sort of stuff and I was holding this plastic, this snap snaplock bag and I was about to pick up a bolus and the wind came out of nowhere blew the bag out of my hands and the bag of course flies off the bridge lands down in the silt for those of you who don't know Tamar the Tamar river is full of silt which is super fine super muddy gets everywhere it's pretty disgusting and it's all found in the wetlands as well I, I couldn't leave this snap off bag in the mud I was like no I can't do that that's like defeats the purpose of everything that we're doing right now so I climb off the boardwalk and take my shoes off and start wading through the silt everything's going fine and then my colleague's like oh Careful, Megan, there's like a there's a swan over there that's looking kind of angry. So I try oh, no. like I like pick up this this off bag, I make it to the snap bag in time, and I turn around, and as I turn around, I just like sink oh, knee no. deep into the silt and I <laughs> <laughs> And there's like there's no water because it was low tide, so I couldn't even like wash the silt off my legs. So I ended up just having to walk back through the boardwalks with what looks like poo all over my legs. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, I mean, it's science. We love what we do, right? <laughs>
3: and, and I I, I just realised these little bolus things must be fantastic little projectile things for kids to throw at each other, surely.
2: <laughs> I mean, look, or, or I adults. guess you could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, don't look at it and just go, who can I throw that at? That's not my th- first thought. But, I mean, sure. I mean, look. You could, but I probably wouldn't just because, I mean, we found things like uh, we found a heap of glass, some of the ones that were like there was a shard of glass longer than my finger and it was like it was as if someone had just like smashed a bottle and picked it up, like it was so sharp. We probably get into some of the, the interesting things that we found in them.
0: Well, yeah, come on, let's go. You, you, you're going to have to say
2: it now, Lil. What was, what was the uh, worst thing we ever found? <laughs> so if I hope you're not going to have to cut this out of the podcast, but um, a condom. A condo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty rank. So yeah, there was that one. That one's like triple bio-bagged and locked away in the lab never to be like never to be touched again, but just kept as like a Poor prime bird. specimen. Poor bird.
0: Poor bird.
2: I mean, uh, I just I, re- I don't really like thinking about that one, but um I mean, some of the other things that we have found, are things like uh, we found like exacto knife, Stanley knife blades. Oh, um geez. we found yeah, that one, like, I could still cut paper with that once I'd pulled that one out. We found a lot of personal hygiene products. Um, we found loads of bathroom items. There's a photo which we can, we can email you guys afterwards. It's a dental floss pick and it's about like this long. It's got the sharp pointy end to pick oh. and then it's got the little end with the floss that you're going with between yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the bolus had developed in the, the curvy top bit. There's some purple sheet plastic in there as well. And then the rest of it is just the pointy end.
0: Oh, I just want to Google and get some imagery in my head. Bolus. How do we spell it?
2: E-O-L-U-S. I'm not actually sure what you're going to come up with. Don't just type in Bolus.
0: Comes up with Cambervans. Bolus. <laughs> <laughs> look, they're pretty cool though. Yeah, I got... Google it. Well, Why would you name a brand of Cambervan after? Oh Mate, it Kirk? looks like a smooth Bolus. But I mean, if that came out, yeah, you know, have a look at them. They're futuristic. They're amazing. So, Will we quickly move on while Jeremy's looking at this? We
3: can move on. I'm keen to confirm, uh, like I'm sure you guys have got some amazing stories about what you find in these boluses, but just to confirm, that these these obviously are sitting within the stomach of these birds for a reasonably long time for it to be, say, compacted, et cetera. Have you got a feel for how long uh, these boluses are within the, uh, the belly of these birds before they're actually vomited?
2: So what we... No, is that they will deposit roughly one per day so however many meals those birds will eat whether it's like a say they might have a massive fish which is obviously full of bones that might be enough to produce a bolus or they might have a few scattered smaller meals elsewhere some of them might be shellfish where it's just the soft fleshy bit not a whole lot of hard stuff and then it will just it will just produce when they've sort of got enough in their in their stomach. Usually, it's around one per day or so. So we can sort of determine that it's between one and maybe a small handful of meals worth of, of debris. That's what
0: time there. do they do it together? Um, you know, is it like bowl Not Stein? actually
2: sure. I mean, we there's a lot of things <laughs> that we on, don't know about this, this but <laughs> <laughs> I. Assume it's either right at the beginning of the day or right at the end of the day. I'm going to assume it's just when the, you know, crack of dawn, they're just like, all right, vomit and let's go. So So
3: they're not just doing it because they're sick. They're, they're, is it all of their system, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's 100% natural. So ideally, uh, a typical gull diet would have things like squid and fish and beetles and even, you know, rodents, rats, mice, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, there'd normally be things like teeth and bones and shells and exoskeletons. And we have found that. I mean, they, they are still consuming these items. It's just just so happens that plastic, glass, and metal are also non-digestible, and so when they consume these, we can we can see that, and we can also, yeah, sort of determine where they're where they're foraging. So,
3: and, and just to confirm, where are they foraging? So, are they, these obviously birds that can fly? You know, some I distance. Are they are they staying locally, or are they are they going for thousands of kilometers away?
2: So, again, this is an area where we can. Semi-confidently say we do know where they're feeding because of the items that we found like dental floss picks, personal hygiene, like condoms for goodness sake. Mm. We can assume that they are feeding from a landfill and there is a landfill about sort of seven kilometers away from their roosting site. So, that's well within their range because there are things like fish, there were squid beaks and that sort of thing. The site is probably around 80 kilometers from the coast, Um, so we can also safely assume that some of them are still going there semi-regularly it wasn't you know it wasn't uncommon to see fish and that sort of thing but what we don't know is is it the young ones that are feeding from the tip or are the young ones still feeding from the coast or how have they adapted and and what age age class of these birds are are changing their behavior to a more urban based feeding strategy
1: Mm. I'm just going to add on to what Lillian just said so we we can pretty confidently say that the the plastics and other waste that they're that we find in their boluses isn't coming from a marine source because when we look at seabirds who do feed in marine environments and um, solely marine environments the plastics that they that they're ingesting are often hard plastic fragments that have either quite a lot of weathering to them so they have like really like soft edges and we mostly only find hard plastic fragments so we um from the breakdown of bigger, like larger items mm, such mm. as like buckets and that kind of thing. And we very, very rarely find anything else. So we, we almost never find sheet plastics, like plastic bags and that mm. kind of thing, or like polystyrene. Whereas with the, the Pacific gull boluses, it was mostly sheet plastics, polystyrene, those sort of typical items.
3: Wow. And, and, and just get a feel. So, what proportion of these birds are actually got? haven't got plastic in their bellies and boluses?
2: So we found that greater than 90% of our sample contained at least one item of human-related debris, that being plastic, glass or metal. Of that, plastic alone was 86%, glass was in 64% uh, and usually it was a mixture of all three. So, yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, I was expecting something Kind of. I mean, these birds are urban. They're they're everywhere. They're feeding out of bins, landfills. They're chasing kids for hot chips. They're Mm. they're everywhere. So I was expecting there to be definitely a strong presence, but by no means greater than ninety percent. Um, that was quite quite a moment when we did the stats that day. So.
3: And and just to confirm, these are plastic pieces. They're not microplastics, are they? They're essentially visibly identifiable. You know, you can actually see what it is from. It, It is the original product almost.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the time we were able to identify what they were. For example, the dental floss pick, which I, I think we'll send you guys because that's a really powerful photo, Mm -hmm. that one. And yeah, a lot of the time, if it was a sheet, a piece of sheet plastic, they most likely have ingested one larger piece that's been tossed around in their stomach, crushed around. There's other things in there and it's come out. And then when we take it apart, it's in, it's in smaller pieces, but yeah, most of the time we can see oh that's probably a plastic bag. There was a lot of times um there was like a yogurt, like a, a sort of foil yogurt lid which still had the brand and everything on it. Oh, um There was like one of the the cheese string, string of cheese, is that what it's called? Yeah, the yeah. so yeah, there was a half wrapper of those still intact, still with the brand, still really really identifiable. So a lot of the time it's pretty much just as if we'd Thrown it in the bin and taking it back out again, we can see what it is.
0: Wow! The landfills that were are filling up full of plastic are basically becoming awesome places for birds to go and go. Oh, this looks like food. I'm gonna go and forage. So, not only it's going into the oceans and and going out to, you know, all of the world's ocean, but on land, our our, our, our birds are learning to go down to landfills to get a feed to come back. So. I mean, we're, we're the problem. Again, we're creating – I mean, and then if you think about it, you're a bird. If you looked at a landfill, you'd be like, yeah. oh, give me some of that. It's got mixed colours. It'll have everything quarrelling in it.
1: Be it's it. just the equivalent of, like, coals and woolies yeah. to humans. I mean, it's just like well, – Or you can eat buffet. Yeah. <laughs> it's a reliable source of food for them. And, and it's not just the Pacific gulls. It's all sorts of gulls all over the world who are using landfills, but it's also – Rats and mice and other rodents and all sorts of other animals. Raccoons and bears and other parts of the world, yeah.
0: I mean, we we did a podcast the other day with uh, Dr. Janice Brainy, and she was investigating atmospheric, uh, you know, ba- basically trying to measure what's coming out of the atmosphere in the Joshua Desert over in the US. You know, the Joshua T. tree from, from U2. And, uh, you know, her study wasn't about plastic, but, you know, she got into it and then realised... Oh my God, what's all this stuff that I'm finding in the most pristine areas in the middle of nowhere? And it's raining plastic up to, I think, 80 to 400 bits of plastic per square meter per day oh in the middle of nowhere. Yes. So, you know, whether it's Coles and Woolies feeding us or us feeding the seagulls, one of the most important things that, apart from having lots of fun on this podcast, is drawing up the bloody mm. dots. You know, whether we're speaking to Daryl Blatchley over in the Philippines about plastic that are killing whales, and he's doing necropsies and finding atrocious results that people wouldn't normally care about unless it was people giving a shit like you guys, mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. going out doing the research and then communicating that research, as Brad said at the start mm-hmm. of this, on paper. Sorry, Lily and Megan, but you know, you're just you're just two people, but getting out, getting in front of um, people, getting out into the community. Um, there's there's a lady called Dr. Vanessa Priota, I think is uh, how you pronounce her last name. And she has been fantastic at getting out about whale snot. And she's on TV. She's doing her very best. And she's like, it's it's a fantastic thing. Why? She did a PhD in whale snot.
2: Now we've you- got a snot girl, great.
0: <laughs> oh, well, she's <laughs> yeah. a future podcast. But this is the whole point. You guys are doing really important research, which is in creating other bits of research. Mm. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.